All right. Now we are in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall, with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. These were, or there were, three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, or its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp 
is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be night no, no longer there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, in the previous chapters, we've had the return of Christ and then the final judgment. The return of Christ and the final judgment. Now the Apostle John describes how God is going to recreate this current heaven and earth into a new one. And then he describes the circumstances of this recreation. When we read this chapter, just as we've read the many chapters of Revelation, there are some things that are symbolic. However, we cannot take the symbolism too far and make everything a myth or fictitious, something that's just completely fabricated as religious fiction. We cannot do that. After describing the chapter, at the end of it, we will see what points we have to say are actually literal and factual from this chapter. Okay? So let's review it in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The Apostle John has a new vision, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. The, the, the prophet Isaiah had already prophesied that this would happen. Isaiah 65:17 and 66:22. Peter the apostle in 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3:13, he also speaks of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the case here as well in chapter 21, wickedness has been judged and expelled. The the earth and the heavens will be destroyed just as it was described in chapters 19 and 20 and in 2 Peter chapter 3, destroyed, and then God will recreate from that destruction new heavens and a new earth where righteousness only dwells. Only righteousness, that is God who is righteous and His righteous people will live there in the new heavens and the new earth. From the previous chapter, all the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. He says in verse 1 that there is no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea because the environment will be transformed. The whole cosmos, the world will be different. It will not be a place that needs this equilibrium between those inhabitants and things on the dry land and those that are in the sea. There's no need for any of that any longer. Therefore, there's no longer a sea. God will sustain the earth, the whole earth, so that people, the righteous, will dwell on the earth. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The holy city, in the Old Testament, this phrase occurs several times, and even in the New Testament, that Jerusalem is the holy city. Jerusalem was an actual place in time and space, even in modern in the modern era, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. But in the Bible, the Jerusalem of ancient times in the Old Testament and the New Testament was a symbol and a figure of a heavenly Jerusalem and of an eternal state. 
that which God desired for the people who lived in Jerusalem to do, that is practice righteousness, often they did not do so. However, what he wanted them to do in the earthly Jerusalem will transpire in the heavenly Jerusalem. It will happen. And we see here that it's called the holy city. And in this sense, it will be fully and completely eternally holy without any wickedness. It comes down out of heaven from God. It comes down out of heaven from God. That is, it's not man who creates it, but it's God who creates it. And he's the one that causes it to come down out of heaven. It originates in God. It's pure and holy and righteous. And he brings it down to the earth. This is the, the opposite, quite the opposite of the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, it is the wicked people of the earth who build a tower and a city whose top they want to reach into heaven. They want to reach up into heaven and show how great they are, but God is showing here that He's great and that righteousness comes from heaven and true worship comes from heaven, true godliness comes from heaven, not from earth up to heaven. So we don't reach up to God. God reaches down. He condescends to us. And this city is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this we, we will take here as being a literal city with literal inhabitants. That is the saints, the righteous ones, the elect. They will be the literal inhabitants of this literal city. We know that the bride is the church from chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And in verse 8, the bride, the saints, these are the righteous acts of the saints. That's why the bride has uh, fine linen, bright and clean. This is the bride. But the city also, often in the Old Testament, both the city uh, as a place that should possess righteousness is indicated as Jerusalem, but also the people in there are also sometimes called Jerusalem. And I think in this case too, we have both happening at the same time in the true and full sense. There's a literal city with literal righteous people dwelling in that city. And this is why it is as a bride adorned for her husband, like chapter 19 and verses 7 to 9. So, then verse 3, we see, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, From the throne we have the voice of God shouting loudly and declaring these words, because it's worthy of celebration. It's, it's worthy of rejoicing. That's why it's a loud voice. Behold, notice, look, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. The first thing to note, this is the goal. This is the supreme desire of all who are righteous, all the saints, all those redeemed. What is their supreme and highest goal? To be with God. They don't care what, the, what eternity is going to entail. They want to be with God. They're not looking for uh, uh, long hours and hours playing sports or watching TV or eating the best of foods. 
That's not what they're looking forward to, do, to doing. They're looking forward to being in the presence of God. And this is what God declares here. The tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God. God will dwell among men. He will dwell among men. Now when it says tabernacle of God, it doesn't mean the literal temple of God because later it says there's no temple there. God himself is there and we are there. That's all it says. So when it says tabernacle of God, it's another way of saying the dwelling place of God, where he will be visibly present among his people. That's what it's talking about, the tabernacle of God. This word tabernacle, of course, comes from the book of Exodus when God told Moses to establish the tabernacle, this moving place of worship. But it's also used of Christ in John 1.14. The verb for uh, in, in the original language, to dwell, is the verb to tabernacle. To dwell, that it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the one and only uh, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. What He did for a few years on the earth in his incarnation to accomplish our redemption will happen permanently forever and ever so that he is with us. He will tabernacle with us, dwell with us. Not only will he do that, but it says they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. We will be his people. We will belong to him. Not in any superficial sense, not in any false sense, but in the true sense, we, the people of God, will be with God. God owns us. We are His possession, His treasured possession, and we will experience that treasured relationship for all eternity. This is the, the longing of all the people of, of Scripture. That's our longing, too, is for God to be with us, for Him to own us, for us to belong to Him, and experience His presence forever. Verse 4. Notice this benefit. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. The first things. The first things are those things which happen from Genesis up to this point. At least from Genesis 3 up to this point. The first things are all those things that have transpired since the fall of man. Certainly from the creation, but the creation and the fall, it did not take long for Adam and Eve to fall. They fell on the sixth day of creation. So what human history has experienced by way of tears, death, crying, mourning, pain, all of these things, all of these curses because of man's sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and we all sinned in them. Romans 5, 12 to 21. We sinned in them. They sinned and brought all of this turmoil and affliction upon the whole human race. They brought death. They brought sorrow and pain. They are the ones that brought that. We all did that in them. And we continue to do that. But at this point, God will take it all away. Death will be swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. God will conquer death. Death is what we fear. Death is what we don't want. Death is what brings a, a, the greatest amount of sorrow to people when they lose their loved ones. This death. 
God will take it all away. Everything that we've experienced here, all the afflictions, all the temptations, all the tumult of life will go away. Only peace, only righteousness forever. Because the first things have passed away. The second things, the last things, the eternal things will be forever. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The one who sits on the throne makes this declaration. Either this is God the Father or the Son. In, in this case, because of what's said in verse 6, it's likely the Son. It's the Son who is sitting on the throne. He was sitting on a throne in chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Jesus is going to judge the whole world and it's likely that it was Christ in Revelation 20, verse 11. And it's likely Christ here as well. And what does he say? Behold, I'm making all things new. Everything will be transformed. Everything will be reformed. Everything will be re, uh, renovated and recreated. Everything. We're not going to experience the current sins and the current turmoil and afflictions anymore. How do we know it's true? And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. He says this to John because he wants John to record these words for our benefit. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through per perseverance in the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15.4 That's why the Old Testament was written according to the Apostle Paul. But that's why all the scripture is written. Things are written so that subsequent generations can read and benefit. They can read it and trust the promises of God. Don't doubt them. Don't, don't uh, be a skeptic uh, and a cynic against the Word of God. Believe the Word of God. It's the inspired, inerrant Word of God. The Holy Spirit, God of the prophets and the apostles. And right here, Christ Himself speaks to John and tells him, Write these words because they are faithful and true. Write them because other people, many other people, the elect of all ages, need to read this and believe this. That they are faithful. It will happen. They're true. Nothing is false. And no, uh, no promises will fall to the ground. All promises will be fulfilled. Verse 6. He identifies himself. Why should we believe his words, the words of verse 5? Because of who he is in verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, It is done. Just as prophets do. God declares to the prophets what words they should speak. They often speak of future events in the past tense or in the current, uh, in the current situation. It is done. That is, a present tense with a, a, a continual uh, implication or application. It is done. Something has happened and we currently have the results of it. It is this way. It is done. And in this case, though, it's already been done. Most of it has already been done. What we are about to read in the remaining of chapter, uh, remainder of chapter 21 and chapter 22 will take place in, some sh in, in, in short moments. But most of it has been done. It's reliable. What God said actually 
was accomplished. And then, who is he? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. For us, we would say from A to Z. But what does God mean by this? What he means is that he is the source of all things and he's the end of all things. He is the goal of all things. He is the originator of all things and he's the one that brings everything to consummation. From origination to consummation. From the beginning to the end, everything happens because of him. Everything happens because of him. Not because of any other god, because all other gods are false gods. Not because of any human. Not because of any angel. They ultimately happen because he alone is the sovereign, almighty Lord God of the universe. He alone is the true and living God. Verse 6 continues. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. God is the one who gives to those people who are spiritually thirsty. Spiritually thirsty. He will give to them the water of life, eternal life, without cost. The water of eternal life is Christ himself. The water of eternal life is Christ himself. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Shall never thirst. He is what we need for our spiritual thirst. And this will last forever. He told the woman at the well, John 4, 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. As well, Isaiah, in Isaiah 55 verse 1, spoke of this water, spoke of these nutrients that we need without cost. Come buy, come drink without cost. Now, why is it that we need to come to Jesus and it's without cost? Because there is no debt. There is no deed. There is no monetary value that we can present to God for God to say, okay, you gave me this, I will give you eternal life. There's no good thoughts. There's no good words. There's no good deeds. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of resistance to evil. There's, it, it's not as though it's a scale or a balance. We do, do more good than bad, and then God will give us eternal life. Nothing like that. Even um, in Christendom, there are people who say, that our faith and repentance are debts we owe to God. God does everything else, and we owe Him repentance and faith as our debt, our moral debt to God. And then He gives us eternal life. Because we produce that, He does everything else, but we produce our repentance, we produce our faith, our own, and we give them to God, and then we clinch the deal. We strike the deal. That's not the case. It's without cost. It's without cost because faith and repentance are gifts of God. They are gifts of God 
So he gives his gifts of faith and repentance to his elect, to the people he wants to save, and then they believe. So everything that Christ did on the cross was for the benefit of the people of God, for the elect of God, the sheep, the children of God, not for every person. This is why he says, he gives to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost to us, but it did cost God. It cost him his son, his perfect, sinless, unblemished son, dying on the cross to pay for our sins. That's the only payment God receives. Not anything we give him. He continues in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes. We overcome, we are overcomers by faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Faith is what overcomes the world. Our faith in Christ causes us to be overcomers. We will have the victory and we will inherit these things. An inheritance. We don't earn an inheritance. We are granted an inheritance because God adopts us. He adopts us into His family in Christ. And then He says, I will be His God and He will be my Son. The Scriptures sometimes speak of our relationship to God in terms of sonship. Now, this is not to the exclusion of women, but it's for the purpose of the analogy. Because typically, in the Bible and in human society, when an inheritance is received, it is, and when a name is transferred from generation to generation, the name and the inheritance typically goes to the son, so that he might establish a family and perpetuate that name and perpetuate the wealth within the family. That's why the term son is used so that it will remind us that we are inheritors, inheritors of what our Heavenly Father grants to us. Not because we are great, but because He has adopted us as His Son. And this includes both men and women in the analogy. Just as men are included in the analogy of being the bride of Christ. Because spiritually speaking, men and women who believe in Christ are a part of the bride of Christ. Then, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now he contrasts, as the Bible does. The Bible is prone to making a contrast and a distinction between believers and unbelievers, righteous and wicked people. Here in verse 8. A description of the wicked. And he has a summary list. He does not have an exhaustive list of every single sin that you can imagine. The Bible never does that. But it tells us enough for us to know that any sinner who does not repent of his sins will go to the lake of fire. Specifically, he identifies a few here. The cowardly. Those people who claim the name of Christ... False brethren who claim the name of Christ, but when persecution or affliction arises because of the word, they fall away, Jesus said. 
When persecution or affliction arises because of the word, they fall away. They say, oh, no, 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 I, I don't really believe. Well, I could take it or leave it. No, I don't believe in Christ. I used to believe in Christ, but now I believe in this other religion. Or I'll believe in whatever you want me to do. Don't put me to death. I'll do whatever you want. Just don't torture me. This is what cowards do. Cowards deny Christ. And Christ said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Matthew uh, 10, 32 and 33. Christ will deny us if we deny him. Cowardly people will not go to heaven. Unbelieving. These unbelievers may be the, the pagans, generally the unbelievers, or it may be even another description of people who are false brethren. They may never openly deny Christ, but they are very good at being pretenders and unbelievers. Whether it's talking about unbelievers generally who are explicitly that, or those who pretend to be believers, these people, if they don't have true faith in Christ, go to the lake of fire. Then the abominable. The abominable. In the Old Testament, the abominable are typically those people who practice idolatry and or immorality. Idolatry and immorality. And usually it's sexual immorality. Idolatry and immorality. These are people detested by God. But also we can add a third possibility to the abominable people. In Titus 1, Titus 1 verse 16, the apostle says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The detestable people are people who profess to know God, but live a hypocritical life. Their deeds show they don't really believe in God. They claim it, but they don't actually live it. He continues, murderers. A murderer is someone who kills innocent human life. A murderer is someone who kills innocent human life. Now that can take place in various forms. It could be murder of a stranger, murder of your neighbor. It could be murder of your father, murder of your mother, murder of your brother. It could be any kind of murder like that. That's what murder is. Murder of your own child. There are even parents who murder their children. And these days, one of the most common ways that this murder is perpetuated is through abortion. You, euphemistically, medically called abortion. Really, it's baby butchering. Baby butchering in the womb. This kind of murder takes place daily. And, with, and many times brazenly and without any remorse. He also says immoral persons. Immoral. Immoral here, this is the word for sexually immoral. Sexually immoral people can be those who fornicate in the Bible. That is, they have sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is fornication. That's immoral. But also immorality includes adultery. That is, when one of the people involved with the immorality, husband or wife, commits a sexual act with someone outside of the husband or wife, that is adultery. If a man does it, he's an adulterer. If a woman does it, she's an adulteress. These people go to hell without repentance. They go to hell. 
sorcerers. Sorcerers take uh, uh, they participate in the things that are with the unseen world, with the demonic world, with the occultic world, in the world of divination, uh, reading the stars and horoscopes, palm readers, mediums, channelers, all of these kinds of people, tarot card readers, crystal ball gazers, all these kinds of people can be described as sorcerers. They are seeking for extra knowledge. They're seeking for knowledge outside the Bible and when they do so, they are consulting demons. They're consulting fallen spirits, fallen angels. And these people are consulting and worshiping a different God. Those who worship a different God go to hell. Idolaters. Idolaters, in the standard sense, in the typical sense, idolatry proper is worshiping an image, worshiping a statue, and considering it to be a valid way of worshiping that God, or, or even the God of the Bible. Either worshiping a different God or the God of the Bible, if it's done with an image, a statue, it is idolatry. Because the God of the Bible cannot be contained, and you cannot imagine that you can worship Him however you want to worship Him, but you must come to worship Him in His terms. However, he says he ought to be approached. That's the way we should approach him. And then when pagans do so, when polytheists or pagans worship idols, they're worshiping false gods altogether. And in fact, they are worshiping demons. The Apostle Paul says so, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22, that when Gentiles offer sacrifices to their idols, they worship demons. Whether they admit it or not, whether they know it or not. And then liars, all liars. This will come up again in 21:27. this term liars, and also in 22, verse 15, liars. He highlights this fact that all liars are thrown into the lake of fire because this is the problem started by Satan. The serpent of Genesis 3 was a deceiver. Eve said so. To God, in Genesis 3.13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And since then, he has been characterized as a deceiver. He is deceitful. He has guile. He has trickery. He tries to trick people and hoodwink people into doing things that are contrary to the will of God. Three times in chapter 20, he's called a deceiver. That's what he loves to do. And those people who follow him must do the same. By nature, John 8, 44, Jesus said that by nature, since Satan practices deception and lies, his people, his children, Satan's children, do the same. And whoever does not belong to Christ belongs to Satan, according to John 8, 44. So unbelievers practice lies. They practice lies because they live hypocritically. They practice lies because whatever the Bible says, they reject. And they think that they are the truth tellers and they make God out to be a liar. When actually God is the truth teller and they are liars. Whatever unbelief they have that contradicts the Bible makes them a liar.
So, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We saw this in chapter 20, verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the ultimate destiny. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is either eternal punishment or eternal life. This lake of fire is the hell, the Gehenna, the eternal punishment and torment of the wicked. It's a real event, a real place, forever and ever. Now he turns his attention to the dimensions of the city, the material and the dimensions of the city where righteousness dwells. Verse 9, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. From chapter 17, verse 1, this one of the seven angels, he's the one that describes what happens to Babylon the Great, which is the, the mother of all harlots, the one who pollutes and, and dilutes, corrupts the whole earth. The false religion and the false government of Babylon corrupt everybody. But in this case, that same angel, likely, is going to now show and reveal to John what the true bride, what the true and godly righteous woman is like. Because she is the wife of the Lamb. The bride is the wife of the Lamb. Oh, a minor note. We ought not to be perplexed that a bride could be called wife because in the scriptures, if one is engaged, one can be called a bride or a wife. And one example of that is in Matthew chapter 1 where Joseph is called the husband of Mary even though they were engaged. Because legally, biblically, that's what they're considered. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. During the engagement, he wanted to divorce her. Because legally, and in terms of covenant, they were married, even though they had not come together as a married couple yet. And that's the same here. These words are interchangeable, bride or wife. Also, by the way, even today, after somebody's been married for a long time, when he's introducing his wife, sometimes he, he'll say, this is my bride. We do that in English too, so there should be no, no paradox or contradiction. Okay, verse 10. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. He, the angel, takes him away in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit. This is meant to tell us that this is a true and right vision. This is not him who, who's a, a fanatic, some religious fanatic, who's uh, crazy and daisy with his mind in terms of seeing things of the future or religious things. He's not speculating, and this is not happening that way. This is happening because the Holy Spirit of God has taken hold of him and is revealing these truths to him. The angel and the Spirit are guiding him to see these things. 
Now, he's taken to a great and high mountain. This is so that he can look down and view all the things that he's about to see, all the glory of the city and those who inhabit the city. He is sent to a high mountain so that he can view it in, in the best way possible. Now, again, the holy city, Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. That which comes down out of heaven has the glory of God. The people of God were there. They were there temporarily until the new heavens and the new earth. Now they come down, and they come down with the city. They are the inhabitants of the city from God, and therefore they have the glory of God. They reflect His glory, everything there. The people and the city all reflect the glory of God, the brilliance of God, which it says in verse 11. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The brilliance of the city was like a very costly stone. Now, this is in in order to depict how glorious it is, how radiant it is, how marvelous it is that the city is this way. Because only that, even in our world right now, only that... uh, Only those who are wealthy enough, privileged enough, have access to these kinds of stones, these kinds of precious stones. But at that time, we all will have access to them. It will all belong to us, depicting the fact that we are now in a privileged situation, seeing the glory of God and experiencing Him forever, to fellowship with Him and to worship Him forever. Verse 12. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. It has a great and high wall. Walls are erected for the purpose of security. In heaven, or in the new heavens and new earth, we will not need security in a literal sense, because the devil and all wicked people will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no one to molest us there. But a high wall is here presented with gates and angels at the gates in order to remind us and in order to give us consolation that this is a secure place. Nothing will change. Nothing will overturn it. Nothing will destroy it. Because God will make sure that this protected, secure situation lasts forever. There's no regression into sin again. And death again. Verse, and then it says in verse 12 that the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed on them. Their names are there because they are uh, an example and a representation of the Old Testament saints, those patriarchs of the Old Testament who believed in Christ. So that is a reminder of how they, by their faith, and even by their progeny, built up the people of faith, the Old Testament people of faith, by their offspring, so that there could be Christ who comes into the world. Verse 13, There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. This, and the points of the compass, remind us of Numbers chapter 2, where the people of Israel were encamped, And they were encamped that way in order to ensure protection. 
in, in order to ensure that they were protected from enemies on any side that might attack them. Here, we're given further assurance that God has all this worked out and we have a secure and, and protected place to dwell. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the, names, the, the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Here, now, on the foundation stones of the city, twelve names on the twelve stones. This, the twelve apostles, they represent the New Testament and the New Covenant. Whereas the tribes represented the Old Covenant, now here, the New Covenant, those who believed in Christ under the Old Covenant and those who believe in Christ under the New Covenant, they all belong there. This is not only for the church or certain people in a restricted period of time, whether the Old Testament saints or even the church people in the church age or anything like that. There is no qualification. This place belongs to anyone who believes in Christ, whether Old Testament, predominantly Jewish, or New Testament, predominantly Gentile. 15. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. He has this precious gold measuring rod. Precious gold measuring rod. In chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 1, there was also a temple measured there, measured there by John, and it said it was a measuring rod like a staff. There he has a measuring rod like a staff, a wooden one. But here, the angel has one that's of gold. The difference, the distinction has to do with how much more precious this is, how much more eternal this is, how much more fixed this is, that an angel measures it. He measures the city, the gates, and the wall, which are now described in verse 16. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, here when it says as a square, it, there are two interpretations. That it, this is literally a square, or it's meaning it has equal measurements. Because it says length and uh, width and height in verse 16. Length, width, and height are equal. Those are the three. That it is this way, uh, like a cube. And it says it's 1,500 miles. Your translation may say 1,400 miles. It depends on the exact measurement. And there's some uncertainty as to the exact measurement of the original language word. Whatever the case, it's measured. It's measured to show that God has amply, fittingly provided for His people. It's an immense place. And He has control of it. He, he knows its dimensions. He's protecting it. And He's controlling everything that's there. 17. And He measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. 72 yards or 216 feet. This is the way it's described here uh, in terms of the wall. And here there's a difference of opinion whether he's describing the height of the wall or the width of the wall or its depth. How, how uh, far is it horizontally or how far is it vertically? Uh, 
But here he says it's human measurements which are the same as angelic measurements. So why this note? Since an angel is measuring it, people could think that this is completely symbolic and metaphorical and even fictitious. That we should not look at this in any literal fashion. However, he takes pains to tell us it's human measurements, which is also the same as angelic measurements. The angel is not going to measure in some esoteric and, and different or elitist way. He's going to measure it in human measurements so that we can have an understanding, so we can have a grasp, some idea of what it's like. Then in verses 18 to following, and following, he's describing the wall and the stones. Verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The wall is jasper and the city of pure gold like clear glass. Now the purpose of the jasper and the purpose of the gold and even the rest of the stones is so that the light is reflected from it. It's reflect the light of God, the glory of God is reflected onto it and then we see that and experience it. That kind of brilliance or in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God, that brilliant light of God in the tabernacle and then in the temple of God so that the people who were there had to, had to cover themselves, had to close their eyes, had to bow down because they could not tolerate that brilliant light. That's the way it will be in the heavenly city, in the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to the earth. This is the reason for the stones and the stones that are in such pure, perfect state. Verse 19, now the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. Then he mentions the different kinds from verses 19 to 20. The different kinds of stones. These stones are of various colors. Blue, green, red. Different kinds of colors in order to uh, reflect the glorious light of God onto us. So that we experience this and are overwhelmed by the fact that we are indeed in the presence of God, in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Then verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The gates themselves, another precious item from the sea, pearls. Pearls will be huge. The gates will be huge gates and the pearls will be huge in size, again reflecting the kind of uh, unique, precious, luxurious presence of God that we will experience. And then he says, the city was pure gold. The street of the city was pure gold. We walk on dirt roads and streets. We walk on paved ones. But we don't ever walk on pure gold streets. But that time we will because God will provide that for us. We will be better than royalty. Even royalty now throughout all ages, they don't always have gold around them. They don't always walk on gold. But we will forever and ever because He will make us a kingdom of priests. 
Verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There is no temple, no physical, literal temple for all eternity, because God will be there. God the Father will be, and the Son will be there. They are its temple. Verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamp. There's no need of sun or moon. When it says there's no need, it seems we should take that to mean there will be no sun or moon. There will be no sun or moon. For example, verse 25 says, And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there. There's no night, because if there were sun and moon, typically what do they do? They make their motions throughout or around the world so that there's daytime and nighttime. But there will always be daytime. And why will there always be daytime? Because the Lord God and and the Lamb are the Lamb. God will illumine it, and by means of the Lamb, the Lamb of God will illumine the whole universe. 24. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. There are those who take this verse, verse 24, to mean that unbelieving nations are somehow on the outside for a long time, either in the millennium or for all eternity outside of the city. They're not actually in the lake of fire. And there are others who mistakenly too take verse 24 to mean that all nations go to heaven. That is, they believe in universalism. They believe that every person, whether righteous or wicked, whether they believe in Christ or not, and even all demons, including the devil, they will all experience heaven or this heavenly Jerusalem on earth, that they will all experience that. Universalists misread, misinterpret this verse as well. What does it mean? It means that the redeemed nations, the redeemed nations, he's celebrating the fact of what he said earlier in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and in chapter 7, verse 9, that men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be there. That's what he's talking about. They will walk by its light. They will walk in its light. By means of its light, they will walk, they will dwell in the, this heavenly Jerusalem, coming down from God. They will be there too. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth, they have their temporary earthly glory, but those redeemed ones among them, they will come there too. They will come there too. What they had on the earth is nothing compared to what they will have in the future. 25. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. This is another significant statement about how it will always be a place of worship, always be a place of light and life, never a place of fear, Never a place that the enemy will come and invade the city. It will never be like that because the gates will be open. They will never be closed. There's no need to close the gates because there will be no enemy on the outside threatening to torment and destroy. Verse 26. 
and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. The glory and honor of the nations into it that they bring will be the redeemed people among the nations. The redeemed people among the nations, this is what he means by the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into the city. Those redeemed people are the glory of God, the honor of God. In contrast, 27, nothing unclean. No sin, no sinful object, no sinful person. Nothing unclean. Remember, the clean and unclean, the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, whether of the mouth, saliva, or or whether of bodily fluids, these were presented in order to make a distinction or to help the people make a distinction symbolically and spiritually that they should make a distinction between that which is holy and that which is profane, that which is good and that which is evil. This is in order to signify that only clean people, spiritually clean people, experience eternal life. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. No one who practices these things. Not that we can't repent of these sins. It's those who practice those sins. Those who justify those sins. Those who say that these are not sins. Those who say that you can be a, 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 a liar and a Christian. You can be a lying Christian and go to heaven. You can be an abominable Christian and go to heaven. You can be an immoral, sexually immoral Christian and go to heaven. You can be a, a, a sorcerer and a Christian and go to heaven. You can be a kidnapper and a Christian and go to heaven. On and on. That's not true. Those who practice these things will never come into it. But those who repent, as the Apostle said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. You used to do those things, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you don't anymore. In fact, those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will enter and be dwellers, eternal dwellers, in this glorious holy city. Here, verse 27 militates against the view that all people and all demons go to heaven. That's not true. Because it says only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And according to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, if anyone follows the beast, if anyone follows the Antichrist, he will not go to heaven. And those who don't follow him, those who believe in the Lamb, are only those that God has written in the Lamb's book of life. They maintain the faith. They are overcomers, but not the the rest of the people. Now, why should we take this literally, that there is a literal heaven and earth? Well, he clearly says there's no temple in it. He clearly says that there's no night, there's no sea. There is a bodily resurrection, correct? There, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, Acts 24, 15. Correct? There is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. We all will experience a body. So where will those bodies dwell? In what physical and tangible place will they dwell? They must dwell somewhere. And also, in a couple of places that are didactic, straightforward, non Uh, apocalyptic 
uh, non-metaphorical chapters of the Bible, it speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, a literal place. So if those straightforward passages speak of a literal place, then minimally we have to understand Revelation 21 in these literal ways. For example, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Straightforward didactic teaching. Again, we have an example in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the re redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one... Also hope for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Creation, the initial creation that was created perfectly, was destroyed by man's sin. Creation was subjected to corruption, to slavery, because of man's sin. A curse came upon the world. A curse came upon man, a curse came upon animals, and a curse came upon the ground. This is why there's death. This is why there are weeds. This is why there are creatures that torment us and people who torment us because of this. But he says that one day it'll be set free from this corruption and that will happen when the sons of God, the children of God, are receiving their adoption. Didn't Revelation 21 say that we are going to receive our inheritance? We will be adopted? When the resurrection takes place, the redemption of our body, Romans 8.23, when the redemption of our body, the re resurrection takes place, and the adoption takes place at that time, the world will be recreated. And we hope and long for this, to live in a recreated, literal heavens and earth, where God dwells and no more wickedness. All right. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Oh,